You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We are a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Hello, beautiful people. If this is your first time meeting me, my name is Ashley Lowe Blassingame. I've been clean and sober for 16 years. I'm a drug and alcohol counselor, interventionist, and the co-founder of a telehealth company called Lion Rock Recovery that provides substance use disorder treatment online. All right, let's get into it. This is our Q&A episode. Scott, what do we got for today? Okay, so this is a tough one. This is how to help a loved one and long-term addiction. So this, I think, is a particularly difficult problem because if you've got somebody who you love who's been addicted for a long time, you've probably tried everything you can think of and you've been down every road you can imagine. And how do you remain hopeful? How do you feel like you're still doing things that are helping even in this really challenging situation? Do you feel like that you have any stories that kind of relate to this particular topic? Yeah. I was talking with a mom whose daughter has been homeless for probably going on a decade and is currently addicted to fentanyl. She was telling me she's tried everything, kind of like you talked about, and how to simultaneously be supportive while also having boundaries. And this is something that is talked about all the time. How do you interact with someone who's in active addiction? Hold boundaries while still letting them know that you're there to support them if they want to get into recovery. This particular situation because it's been long-term active addiction, there have been multiple attempts at getting sober. There's been detoxes and treatments and halfway houses and all the things. My advice to her might be a little bit different than someone who I felt like might be closer to getting into recovery. But I do, I will share what I said to her. So she described the phone calls that she gets from her daughter and how she can't not answer these phone calls because she doesn't know if it's the last time she's going to get to ever talk to her, which I think is fair given the circumstances. And she tells me that every time she talks to her daughter, the way that she supports her or lets her know that she supports her in recovery is by asking her if she's ready to get sober in every phone call they had. And she also added that she would like her to get sober. That was the other piece. Are you ready to get sober? I'd really like you to get sober. And I said, do you struggle with the relationship with your daughter? Yes. Okay. So when... And your goal is when you answer these calls to have a connection with her, to maintain, keep this connection with her through her experiencing homelessness. Correct. Correct. Okay. I asked her, do you think that your daughter does not know that you want her to get sober? She said, of course she knows. And I said, okay. So do you think that she just wanted to get sober and forgot to ask you? She said, no, I don't think so. I said, okay. So you have a difficult relationship with your daughter. Every time she calls you, you ask her, do you want to get sober? I would like to get sober. Two things that are definitely going to get under her skin and create tension. And what I told her was that I would stop doing that because she knows you want her to get sober. She will always know that. That will not be something she forgets. Additionally, 
it's really important if you want to be there for someone in long-term addiction to reinforce your love for them because maybe likely they've done a lot of things. They don't feel lovable anymore and they don't feel like they deserve your love anymore. And maybe they don't, you know, who's to say, but long and short is we don't feel lovable. So tell them that you love them if you do. Tell them that you're here for them if they want to get sober. So that takes out the question. It takes out the opinions. It takes out the judgment. When you're talking to people who are in active addiction and you want to positively plant a seed or affect their behavior, they don't feel lovable because they're doing unlovable things. So they may not know that you still love them. They may not understand that. They may think maybe the last whatever thing that they did, maybe you don't even know about it. This time it made them unlovable. So tell them that you love them. You know, if you're willing to provide resources or any of that, you can say, if you, you know, if you're willing to get help, just let me know. You know, I'm happy to help. We can brainstorm on what what to do. Those are really important ways to stay neutral and still support someone while also acknowledging that the likelihood in that moment that they're going to make that decision is low. They've been in active addiction a long time. And unless something specific sparks that need for change, you know, in this case with that mom, I said the phone calls, it's not likely that that's what she's calling for. But if every time you call, you reinforce those two things that you love her. And then if she does want help, you're there for her. When that moment, if that moment does come, she just may call you. Whereas if you remind her every time she calls that you want her to get sober, when she's maybe believes she's not capable, then you are reinforcing disappointment and judgment and shame. And addiction and alcoholism is rooted in shame. It's all about the shame. And again, for those of you who don't know, the difference between shame and guilt. Guilt is I did something bad. Shame is I am bad. And when you're out there, when you're addicted and doing this stuff for a long time, it becomes very, very difficult to not believe that you're bad because of the things that you're doing. And that stain can make it extremely difficult for people to want to get sober if they've been doing that for a really long time. Kindness, kind words, strong boundaries. Those are the things that really, really help. A lot of parents, I tell them to say that I am here for you if you want to get help. I have arranged four different treatment options or I have arranged for you to have an assessment. You know, If you're willing, I love you. I'm here. I'll support you in getting help, whatever that looks like. But I'm not going to support you in your addiction. And this is the part where it gets really dicey and complicated because certain situations... You know, it's different in different situations, but the the overarching theme, the thing that I see and that I know every interventionist, substance use disorder counselor, person who works in treatment would echo is we see so many parents contributing to the suicide on the installment plan with drugs and alcohol of their kids. And they're not doing it on purpose. They're doing it because they love them so much. Here's a good way to think about it. We talk a lot about people need to hit a bottom. The way to think about this is if you're on an elevator and every time the elevator hits a floor, you don't feel it, right? And in this in this analogy, the floor is a bottom. You don't feel it. The elevator just keeps going down. You don't know what floor you're on. Each of those floors, you're not feeling the depth 
that you're dropping to because someone is creating an opportunity for you to just continue to fall, not feel those consequences, not hit that bottom. So by the time they hit a bottom, so to speak, in this analogy, in this elevator, they're on the ground floor. The consequences are so serious. It is so damaging. And maybe this is their first consequence. It's the most serious one because people have not allowed them to feel the smaller ones, the opportunities to think through the decisions and and maybe even get help. So I see that a lot. And the ways that parents can contribute are offering only to support their loved one in recovery and doing nothing to support their addiction. All right, Ashley. So when you're describing this kind of analogy of the elevator, I think it's really interesting. And I almost am picturing in my mind that there's this crew, right? So we started with a 10-story building and we've got this crew that's building basement floors so that this person doesn't ever have to actually... Well, we're at the bottom, but let's make just give them a little more space. If they have a little more space, this elevator is going to come to a halt on its own. The brakes are going to start working and, and it's all going to work out. Can you think of any instances of other people where maybe even in their best in Tensions, right? It really came from a loving place, but where they were artificially creating these basement levels of the structure for the people who were in addiction. Sure. I mean, the biggest one that I see is parents giving their kids money. They give them rent money instead of paying the landlord directly. And even paying the landlord directly, if they're supposed to be supporting themselves, they're supposed to be going to school, they're supposed to be doing these things, and they're not doing them, they're not holding up their end of the bargain, and you're continuing to hold up the end of the bargain with cash, right? If they have that place to stay, that is more opportunity, right? They likely are diverting the funds that they would use to pay for rent to buy drugs and alcohol, right? They're diverting the funds. You're sending them money for school books. You're sending them money for gas. You're sending them money for class. You're sending them money for whatever it is. And most of the time they're diverting the cash. And so even doing things, I've seen parents you know, doing gift cards to grocery stores and things like that, which I do think is definitely a step above. A lot of the time, if parents really are concerned about those things, I, I say, you know, you pay the, the school directly, you pay the, the bill, the textbook bill directly. Giving someone cash who is in the throes of addiction or access to or the equivalent of is just fuel on the fire. I mean, it's almost unfair to ask them to be able to control and manage that level of access. The ability not to experience losing your apartment, dropping out of school, not having the textbook because you spent the money elsewhere. And these are the types of things and they add up. They sound little, but they add up. And the next thing you know, what happens is because this started to happen, right? Maybe I'm I'm thinking of a situation where the parents are paying for everything so the kid can go to school, right? Community college. And they got them in the apartment, they got them all the things. And it's starting off as alcohol and alcohol addiction and smoking a lot of weed. The longer the parents paid for these things and the worse the problem got, it ended in opiates. But when they first started to see the problem, it was still alcohol and marijuana. And while those alcohol kills more people than all drugs combined, by the time you get to opiates, you have a very complicated problem. You know, relapse rates are different and all sorts of stuff. And so it was not saying, hey, I see that you are not able to pay your bills, but you know, you have all the things to pay them or you're not living up to our agreement. What's going on? 
that's the kind of stuff where kids, they basically have more runway. And so they get deeper into the hole. It's harder to get out the deeper you go in. And so as a parent, you think you're just going to get them through this rough patch. You're just going to help them this way. But unfortunately, I see this all the time. And it's it's more often money related or people with money or giving them a vehicle or giving them access, whatever the thing is that gives them access. If the person didn't have those things, they wouldn't, you know, at a certain point, you won't be able to have that access. If you are homeless, if you experience homelessness, you live on the street because you couldn't pay your bills. That is a very real consequence for someone. It's terrifying as a parent, but sleeping outside is a very awakening in the brain experience for a lot of people, particularly if they're, you know, suburban kids who, you know, this is their first experience with anything like that. It's a wake up call. You want them to have wake up calls. I'm not saying you want just let them die, right? I want to be clear that you want to prolong life as much as possible. That's the goal. So that the more you prolong life, the likelier it is that they'll get sober. And there are a lot of ways to prolong life in these situations. And and that's where you get into meeting with people who do this for a living. Yeah, that's really interesting. And it makes sense. Okay. So let's say I am this parent and I'm at the threshold, right? I'm having to make this incredibly difficult decision where I am withholding something where maybe maybe it is something like this person is facing homelessness, this kid who I care about and I am terrified for being out there on the streets. How do I get there to actually go through with something like this of letting the consequence hit? Is there something that I can hold in my mind that maybe can get me to do the really, really, really hard thing? So getting to this threshold requires you to really have an understanding of what's going on and how addiction works and what's going on in the brain. That's number one. You should be studying that. You should be reaching out and asking if you're getting to that point. So you should have an understanding of that. It's really important dealing with this, understanding it. The next piece is people don't change until the pain of staying the same is greater than the pain of change because changing is painful. Staying the same may be painful, but it has to be more painful than the pain of change. And I know that sounds like a riddle, but it really applies here. I mean, it really, when you think through how people end up getting well, like they have to feel like it's not working anymore. And uh, if you're a parent, you know, look, if your kid, if you have a young daughter who's going to be on the streets in, in Chicago, yeah, I don't think that's probably how I would do that, right? I would figure out a way for them to experience the consequence without putting them in a situation where they're likely to have tremendous trauma. So having more trauma is not good for recovery, right? So we, we want to think through how we do this, which is again, where, where I come in, like find someone, talk to them about the situation. But if they're going to sleep in a park with a friend and or they have a friend's house they can go to and it's just going to be embarrassing and uncomfortable, something they have to face, right? So there's there are different ways where I would think about this in terms of the safety outcome of my kid. But the most important thing is that you understand that this process is actually helping them, right? So it's, you have to reframe how you're thinking about it because as a parent, you don't want your kid to experience anything painful for the most part. Even when you know it's good for resiliency and <laughs> grit and all that, you still are like, I don't want them to experience it. It's still painful for us. And 
I see that parents are so focused on their kids, as is understandable, that they don't reach out and get help for themselves to figure out what they're doing to help their kids and what they're doing to help themselves feel better. And those two things are sometimes different. I think those are the things to hold in your mind. Am I doing this to actually help them or me? Is this for me to sleep at night or is this for them? And again, these are things that you should come up with a plan with someone who does this for a living. I've sat with families and you know, for a living in my career, going through what are the details? What are the medical risks? What are the circumstances? What are the neighborhoods? What are the access to money? What are like we go through every detail about the case and try to figure out, okay, given all these things, what do we do? I once had a case, an intervention I did where the kid was already homeless, right? So he, he, there were very few things to work with in terms of leverage. We needed leverage. He was in deep trouble. I was very concerned about his well being. And so we knew who his dealer was. And so we called his math dealer and said, Hey, listen, we are going to let the police know that we're keeping an eye on uh, the client, the person who we were having the intervention with and that we're concerned. And we know that you are selling the drugs to them. So you just, you should know that you may be under surveillance in an attempt to get this client now was not going to be sold drugs right? That was the tactic. Like, How do we have leverage? Right? We found a creative way for them to not want to give him drugs, which created a circumstance for him that he no longer wanted to be in because homelessness wasn't the thing that he cared about. That wasn't... A, he was already there. So what leverage did we have? That's the kind of thing where you sit around and you think about, okay, what are the circumstances where we can help? What are the pain points? And for the most part, that is something that you really want someone who specializes in this to help you with. I don't know that it's intuitive. What would be some ways so that you can answer this one of two ways? These can either be things that people did for you that were helpful and made you feel loved. Or if you were just writing up a plan for somebody and you don't have a ton of information about them, some ways that even in this long-term situation where we have tried an awful lot, it still could be a gesture of like, there's things I'm not going to do, but I still love you. Can you speak to any of that? Yeah, I think general acts of kindness, of softness, especially long-term active addiction. There's so much self-hatred. There's so much darkness. And when someone shows you kindness, when someone sees you and says, I see that you're struggling, not I see that you're strung out, but I see that you're struggling. I see that you're hurting, even like cooking you a meal or just talking to you without any judgment. Those things are hard to come by when you're in that type of situation. And those moments of kindness and softness that happen throughout your active addiction are things that you feel because it's so unusual. Things that you can do to support them and, you know, acts of service, kindness, loving words, reminding them that you still love them, you know who they are, and you'll love them no matter what. Absolutely. So again, this is a tough one. And this one came out of a conversation that we'd had. But if you have a question that you want us to talk about in a Q&A episode, what should they do about that, Ashley? 
please email us at podcast at lionrock.life. You can find us on Instagram. Our Instagram is courage to change underscore podcast. You can find me on TikTok, Ashley Loeb Blasting Game or Instagram at the same handle. Or you can even email me directly, ashley at lionrockrecovery.com. I'm happy to help, happy to point you in the right direction. If I'm not the right person, please check out Al-Anon, check out Naranon, reach out to a therapist, reach out. There are family programs. Lion Rock Recovery has a six-week family program where family members meet once a week with a therapist and go over plans on how to support their loved one and make specific plans kind of like we talked about and do some education. You don't have to have a loved one in the actual program. So that's different and cool. Whatever you need to do, Healing the Addicted Brain, that's a great book. There are lots of resources out there available to you. Please, please, please find them. And if you have more questions, we do these Q&As. We want to be helpful. Please send us your questions. This podcast is sponsored by LionRock.life. LionRock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code COURAGE for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.